Good morning. It's again a great honor to be here before you and, and share the word as we just sang, offering up ourselves as a, a living sacrifice means that often we want to wiggle off of that altar, come down from that altar, escape from that altar, that place of surrender, our spiritual worship to the Lord. But as we gather, isn't that one of the reasons that we gather? We come to behold, to gaze again at Christ, to sit under the power of His Word and the Holy Spirit, that we would stay in that place of being willing to offer up ourselves as a sacrifice to Christ in light of all that he has done, in light of who he is, and in light of what he is doing in us and through us. And this morning as we uh, come, I'm going to be starting a a new series in the next six weeks or so, I guess six weeks, but there's a couple of uh, holiday Sundays in there where we won't be looking at this, but we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. As we go through this this letter, uh, four or five, six weeks is certainly not enough. This will not be verse by verse exposition, though I would love to do that, but that might take a bit um, of time. But what we're going to do as we go through, uh, walking through Colossians, very intentionally focusing on some of the situational components of why Paul is addressing this church in Colossae that was under the threat of false teaching that would draw them away from trusting in Christ, draw them away from understanding the complete sufficiency of Christ. We're going to walk through, bring our attention and focus on the person and work of Christ, which of course affects how we live and how we grow, how we are Transform. So my prayer as we go through this would be that Christ would not only be the central focus of our devotion as a church, but also that his preeminence would manifest itself in how we live in this world against the, the false philosophies that are pulling us away from truth. The false ideas, the ideology that is pulling us away from Christ. So as we walk through this, we will intentionally look at, maybe as an overview, but focusing in on Christ's preeminence, His sufficiency, that He came in all fullness of God for a very, very particular purpose to set our gaze on Him. So as we start here this week, our topic will be prayer rooted in Christ. So let's pray and set our minds on Him. Father, we are so honored to come into Your house here this morning, and we ask now that You would continue to do Your work in all of us as You draw us as a body of Christ, to be transformed by Your Spirit through the living and active Word that You've given us. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to grow together to serve together, to stand together as witnesses for Christ in today's culture, this society that is against you, and attempting to pull us away from you, will you give us a desire to gaze at your beauty, to open our eyes so that we would even see you as our treasure, and by your work in us, may we learn and grow and 
learn to engage in, in meaningful relationships across this body, but also encourage us as we endure life, as we walk this life together by setting our gaze on Christ through your word. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in us here this morning. For each one who's come, we're all coming in different contexts, different situations, different burdens. But will you lift our eyes up to you? That we'd see you, that we would gaze on you, and we'd see your beauty, and you would change us by doing that. We ask this because we're dependent on you for this change, this transformation. We thank you that you are actively working out your grace in us. For your glory, for your namesake, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we start in on Colossians chapter 1, I just want to reference another passage of Paul's from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because this kind of sets the stage for this series. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is... um, bringing together a new idea of, of, of talking about the new covenant, comparing it to the old covenant. He calls the church a letter of Christ, not written with ink, but with the Spirit. Uh, he speaks of this confidence that comes through Christ, but this confidence isn't to show he has confidence or adequacy in himself, but it comes from God as he has made us servants of a new covenant. And this new covenant, of course, is Christ-centered. It's in Christ. It's by Christ that the old veil has been removed of the old covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 15 through 18, for those who have come to faith in Christ, spiritual perception is no longer impaired. Hardened hearts are made new. Blind eyes can now see. Let me just read these few verses, 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18, because this is setting the stage for this series as we walk through Colossians. Here Paul says, Yes, to this day, wherever Moses is read, the law is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, verse 16, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Verse 18 is key, and we will bring this up many times uh, through this series. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding Christ. This is not just a mental practice. This is a work of the Spirit as we gaze, as we behold the Spirit conforms and transforms. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is this? The transformation. How does that happen? How does the Spirit do that? As we behold the glory of Christ. Paul is again contrasting the ministry of the Old Covenant here with the New. He says, unlike the Old Covenant that was written on tablets, the New Covenant is written on the hearts of believers by the Spirit of the living God. This process of transformation that Paul describes here is beholding the glory of the Lord. As we focus our attention on Christ, we are transformed into his likeness from one degree 
of glory to another. This transformation is not something we achieve. The transformation is not something that we achieve. Not through our own efforts, not through following, following the law, not through our own merit, but as a work of the Holy Spirit who empowers and guides us in our growth and our sanctification. So today, as we begin in, in these weeks to come, as we walk through Colossians, my prayer is that we all, with unveiled faces, will set our gaze on Christ. To behold His glory through a steady gaze, and we will be transformed by the Spirit, a work of grace that we will hold fast, that we will stand firm, that we will love Christ, that we will live for Him, that we will be effective witnesses, that we will make disciples. This gazing on Christ will affect each one of us. It will affect our families. It will affect our marriages. It will affect our parenting. It will affect our children. It will affect our witness to the world, gazing on Christ. Because as living sacrifices, we do want to crawl off of that altar. We need to turn our attention to Christ, gazing on Him, beholding Him. So that's the, the stage that would be set for this series as we go through I believe Paul does this very same thing. For the day of those believers in Colossae, there were false teaching, false philosophies. They needed to set their gaze on Christ. And Paul clearly does this with a very high Christological approach as he presents to them Christ in all of his supremacy, in all of his preeminence, deserving to be the center focus, and attention for the church. Quickly, the context of this this letter, we'll do this each week. I'll try to add something in there. There certainly isn't time to do two weeks of introduction of the context and the elements of the false teaching, but very quickly, the false teaching, at least in the beginning stages here in Colossae, were likely a form of syncretism, mixing elements of Jewish mysticism, Greek philosophy, and pagan superstitions. There was something more. Christ was good, but he's not enough. He's not sufficient. There's something more. The false teachers in Colossae were claiming to have some special knowledge, some special wisdom, which wasn't available for everyone. Uh, This special knowledge and wisdom was necessary for growth, but probably also even salvation at the, out, at the outset. Downplaying this false teaching was downplaying the centrality and sufficiency of Christ. Christ was only one of many mediators between God and humanity. And these other spiritual beings like angels were, were also important for achieving spiritual goals. It came certainly, and we see this in the letter, certainly with an emphasis on strict dietary rules, observances of special days, seasons, other forms of self-denial. And in response to this teaching, Paul emphasizes throughout this letter, as I've already said, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And he opens this letter by recognizing God's work of grace 
in these believers, and he shares how he and Timothy are praying for them. And that's what I want to do here this morning is, again, probably a, a quicker glance at his thanksgiving and prayer. But let's read Colossians 1, verses 3 through 14. We, Paul says that because in the introduction he said this is uh, written by him and Timothy, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in a word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth." Just as you learned it from Epaphrophus, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." There is a lot in this prayer, certainly more that could be unpacked than in just one week. Uh, Probably could do a series of six weeks worth on just this prayer. We're going to try to do this in one one session here. Um, So due to time, we're going to look at broader strokes, quite simply breaking this down into two different ways. What are Paul and Timothy thankful for? We'll do that first, and then what do they pray for? What is the focus? What is the content of their prayer? And along the way, we will bring in some some elements of how could this initial content, even in Paul's thanksgiving and in his prayer, how could that content relate to the situation of the letter? The situational letter that was sent for a purpose, for a particular people living in a particular context under this danger of false teaching creeping in to the church. How does even the prayer, how he prays, the thanksgiving, what he is thankful for, how does that relate to the false teaching? And then what are the things that link these two together, the thankfulness and also the prayer? So, first of all, in verses 3 through 8, let's quickly just look at this. What are, what are Paul and Timothy thankful for? So, I hope you have your, your, your Bible in front of you. I'm not going to put the text up here on the screen just because it's longer and there is a lot here. Quickly here in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is not a letter of congratulations. You did it. Great job. Okay? This is not a letter of congratulations, but this is a form of praise. Paul is recognizing what God has done, 
in them and what he is doing in them and through them. He, always, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Here are the elements that he, what is he praying for? He's receiving word back and hearing about certain things. And he mentions that, first of all, in verse 4, their faith in Christ Jesus. Or some translations will even take this to talk about their faithfulness to or in Christ. But this preposition, um, Paul is usually not casual with his prepositions. In Christ, object of their faith, of course he could mean some other things. He could mean just simply their position in Christ. He could mean their direction toward Christ. And he could mean relationally their union with Christ. In fact, later on in in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith, the firmness of your faith in Christ. Relationally, in union with Christ, positionally in Christ, the object of their faith in Christ. Your good, your good order, that's a military term. Uh, it's the orderly array of a band of disciplined soldiers. He sees their situation as being like that of an army under attack, and their, their lines are unbroken. Their discipline is intact. Their faith in Christ, their reliance on Christ is unshaken. That's what he sees. That's what he's heard. We could make a, 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 a case for this functional aspect of their union with Christ is what's keeping them. It's what's sustaining them. The sphere in Christ in which their faith and their faithfulness is sustained. It's in Christ. Their faith is in Christ. So he is thankful. He has heard about their faith in Christ. But he's also thankful for, secondly, in verse 4, the agape that they have for all the saints. The love that they have for all the saints. Uh, Certainly we quickly understand agape love is, is God's love. It's this unconditional love. If we were broaden that and deepen that, it is his covenant love. It's a covenantal love. It's a faithfulness. It's a commitment. It's a commitment of presence, advocacy, protection, and provision. It's a covenantal love. His love is driven by his purpose to transform us, to complete us, to keep us, to conform us through Christ by the power of the gospel. Driven to, of course, bring glory to his name through this work of redemption. Why does he have such a commitment in this covenantal love? Because he chose us before the foundations of the world. Because he made us for his glory. Because he bought us by the blood of Christ. Paul was thankful because he saw God's work shaping the church to be faithful, to stand in their faith in Christ, and also to love one another with agape love in covenant, in commitment in the family of God with their brothers and sisters. The third thing, and this is typical to have this uh, this triad of faith, love, and hope, but he has a little different twist here. The third thing that he's thankful for is that their faith and their love are visible because of, in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Faith and love are seen to be grounded in hope. 
Faith and love, in fact, this word, spring up from. They're on account of hope. The confidence in what God will do in the future. And this confidence, this expectation of what is laid up for them, called the the, the blessed hope in Titus 2.13, influences their conduct and their behavior. It's because of this string of future blessings being reserved for them. Now they live faithfully in Christ, through Him, with Him, and lovingly toward their brothers and sisters in Christ with confidence of the coming kingdom. Very interesting to note in this verse 5 as well, what is the ultimate cause of faith, love, and hope? Verse 5, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Ultimately, Paul's thanksgiving is grounded in the gospel. It's grounded in Christ. Through the true word of the gospel, the word of truth, not knowledge that is out of reach. False teachers, right? Not some knowledge that you have to go out and discover. Some mysterious knowledge, some mysterious wisdom. Not a knowledge that is reserved for the elite. But it's a knowledge that has come through the message of the cross. That word of truth that came to them and also to the whole world, it's not hidden, it's not a mystery, and it is bearing fruit and increasing. It's a message that they can hold on to because they heard it, but it's also a message that they can see the impact in them and in the world, as Paul here says, that is bearing fruit and increasing. This authentic truth, the good news not only saves and rescues, but also changes and transforms. Faced with this teaching that led them to wonder whether Christ could supply all of their spiritual needs, the Colossians needed to be reminded that their present experience of faith and their present experience of love, their present hope was resting on a solid foundation of God's word, of God's message of the gospel, in fact, itself. And he is working that through them as he transforms them, as they receive the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. So already we see some allusions to the false teaching. Uh, Building his case, protecting the church, even in how he presents these elements of thanksgiving, and as he's going to move into prayer, the believers already have what they need. It came to them through the message of the gospel. Hope of the gospel is evident. Faith and love is being worked out in them. Spiritual change is evident. And it doesn't come to just the elite. It doesn't come to those who have this special knowledge or wisdom or who follow customs or diets or special uh, days. No need to seek more. You have Christ. And Paul, from this prayer, in the coming weeks we'll look at this, he focuses more on that. There is no other mediator. There are no traditions that can transform you. Christ is sufficient. And you have received him through the message of the gospel, the word of truth. And that gospel, that word of truth, is bearing fruit 
and increasing. Not just in you, he says to those in Colossae, but in the whole world. And it started the day you heard it. God is at work since the day you understood the grace of God in truth. So again, faced with false teachers who were encouraging Christians to look beyond the gospel for some ultimate spiritual fulfillment, some new, shiny truth that they could hold on to, Paul presses the inherent power of the gospel itself. Look no further. You have Christ. Gaze on him, behold him. Moving into verses 9 through 14, again, high view. Let's just pick out some of these things that Paul prays for. What do Paul and Timothy pray for? He prays, they pray, that they might continue on this same course. He sees evidence of God's work in them, and he's praying that they will continue on this course of gospel transformation. Verses 9 through 14 complex Greek sentence, just one. (laughs) Diagram that sentence, right? Broken down into three parts, let's just look at this. The content of his prayer, the content of his prayer to God. Remember, this is not a list of commands. This is not a list of commands. This is not him urging them to do these things. He's praying. He's going to the source of, of transformation and change. He's going to God as he goes through this. So we're going to look at the content of his request. We're going to look at what that request will look like because Paul expands on what that will look like. And then he's going to return to the gospel. So the first part of the prayer, Paul's basic content, verse 9, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and the manifestation of that knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled, this is a filling out to completeness. He uses a different word, a filling out to completeness. Again, contrary to the false teachers who said, you don't have enough. You haven't been filled with enough knowledge. You need to seek more, and we know where to find it. Filled, a filling out to completeness, filled with the knowledge of God's will, a full, a deep understanding which does not come from the fleshly mind, but from the Holy Spirit who enlightens us through the Word of God. Uh, Paul talks often about being uh, filled with the knowledge of God, or when he makes reference to the knowledge of God's will, he is referencing the Scriptures. It's not a mystery. It's not something that we have to seek after and and find something outside of this word, his revelation. But Paul anchors the knowledge of God's will to the word of God. That's their source. And these false teachers were coming in and saying, no, 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 this is not enough. There is something more to chase after. Uh, Paul, in fact, will say later on in chapter 2, verse 3, which we will probably spend some time here. He says, the true knowledge of God's mystery is Christ himself. Chapter 2, verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is sufficient. He is the fullness of God. You don't need to chase after other things. You have it in Christ. God's will is embodied in in his son. 
The outcome of this filling of the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and, and understanding, again, we could spend a lot more time talking about this, but leading to just verse 10, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. Reminder, this is a prayer. He is not commanding them anything here. He is praying. He's praying to God that, they, that He would fill them with God's knowledge the knowledge of His will, that He would give them spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. This is a prayer. This is God's work in us. And I know when we read these verses that say, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, most of us are thinking, wow, worthy? Sounds like works. Sounds like performance. Sounds like merit coming from me. So I try. I run that race. I run that, uh, that race to try to perform before God, to try to do things better. I need to earn it. My merit is what pleases God, so I have to work at it. It's quite defeating. When we think that way, uh, this word and Paul's usage of it in other places, he talks about this in Ephesians 4, he talks about it in Philippians 1.27, he talks about this in Thessalonians, he talks about this in 1 John. He says, a manner worthy of the Lord, he sometimes says, a manner worthy of your calling, a manner worthy of the gospel, a manner worthy of Christ, a manner worthy of God. Here, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, worthy, uh, axios, this is a word that means proper, fitting, bringing up the other beam of the scales, bringing into equilibrium. A life that is worthy of the Lord, worthy of the gospel, expresses itself in such a manner equal to how the message itself is expressed. It expresses itself in such a manner that is equal to how the message itself is expressed. And how is that gospel expressed? How is the message of the Lord expressed? You are not worthy. I am not worthy. And I cannot achieve that worthiness apart from Christ. Faith in Christ. We're putting our faith in His worth not in ours. We're putting our faith in His work, not in ours. A manner deserving of the Lord, His worth, a manner that is equal in weight to, to the gospel, fitting of Christ, fitting of the Lord, fitting of who we are in Him, fitting of the gospel. He is holy. I am not. He has this perfect standard that is always out of my reach. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. His righteousness. He came to die. He took my sin upon Himself. He rose again, certainly conquering death and sin. But it is His righteousness that is imputed to us as our sin was imputed to Him. Talk about double imputation. His righteousness. There is no other way for me to stand 
And that's how we're to live. Not moralism, not earning it, not by my merit, not performing it, but it comes through mercy as we go to the cross, as we go to Christ. This is a gospel grid for life, for our marriage, for our relationships, for our parenting. This is a gospel grid that we are sinners, God is holy, and our faith in Christ is how we stand before God. We are always in need of mercy, always in need of righteousness apart from our own because we don't have any. That's the gospel grid. Worthy, a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects is living out the gospel. Seeing that gospel grid, that it's Christ that we trust, it's Him that we fall on. And this prayer already is rooted in Christ Himself. So the second part of the prayer a further description of what that looks like. What does a worthy manner entail? What does it look like? This is God's work in us, bearing fruit in every good work. He already said that it's the gospel, the the word of truth that was bearing fruit in them and in the whole world. He didn't say they were bearing fruit. He said the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing So verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. This is what God's work in us looks like. Being strengthened with all power. And he adds, according to what? God's glorious might in verse 11. For all endurance and patience with joy that leads to giving thanks to the Father in verse 12. A third part of this prayer is returning back to the effects of of the gospel, again, giving thanks that is flowing out of the work of Christ, flowing out of the gospel. Giving thanks to the Father who qualified you, verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, who delivered us from the domain of darkness, who transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's four more weeks of preaching right there. The gospel, the work of Christ, the inheritance that we have, being delivered, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Paul brings them full circle back to the gospel, back to the work of Christ that is completed and that is the work that is fully pleasing to the Father. Fully pleasing to the Father. So his summary, in summary, the, the thanksgiving is rooted in Christ as seen in the transforming work of the gospel. Faith, love, and hope. His prayer is also rooted in Christ that the, the gospel would continue to work, continue to manifest itself as they are filled with the true knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding that comes from God that results in a worthy manner of living that is pleasing to the Father as they grow and bear fruit. Again, the work of Christ. And Paul will advance from here, of course. We're going to look at, look at that in the coming weeks as he advances from this prayer, driving us again to gaze at Christ to behold Him. 
And from 2 Corinthians 3.5, we understand the importance of beholding the glory of the Lord because it's by that that the Holy Spirit is transforming us. Gazing at Christ, beholding at Christ. The importance of that is, first of all, spiritual empowerment in transformation. Beholding Christ is not just a mental exercise, but it has transformational power that affects our hearts, and our lives. This transformation is not something that we can do on our own. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Gazing on Him, beholding Christ, is Spirit-empowered transformation. As we gaze on Him and His glory that we see in the Gospel, the Spirit transforms us. It also centers us on the Gospel. As we behold Christ, as we gaze on Him, it centers us on the gospel. It's the means by which we keep the gospel central in our lives. It helps us to avoid legalism, self-righteousness, thinking that we can do any merit relying on ourselves, but instead relying on the finished work of Christ that continues working in us and through us. The power of God is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, leading to salvation for those who are believing, present tense. It's the power of God to not just rescue us and save us, but to change us and conform us into the likeness of His Son. It also leads to, as we both behold Christ, a Christ-exalting worship. Beholding Christ is the means by which we are moved to exalt Christ as living sacrifices up on that altar, offering up our spiritual worship, our service. In the cross, in Christ, as we gaze on Him, we are reminded of His beauty, His glory, and our hearts are filled with awe at the wonder of what He has done for us and what He is continuing to do, at the wonder of who He is. It centers us on the gospel as we behold Christ. This is not a therapeutic gospel. A a therapeutic gospel would just lead us to, I need to come to church so I feel better. I I need to worship, I need to sing these songs because it makes me feel good. And when the right songs aren't sung, I don't feel as good. This is not a therapeutic gospel to to lead us to make us feel better but a Christ-exalting gospel that actually destroys our attempts to gain favor with Christ on our own merit or gain favor with God by our own merit and to worship Christ alone because of His perfect life, His perfect atonement. It was completed. It, it, It captures us. It enraptures us to see His beauty and see Him as a treasure as we surrender and then worship to Him. It's not about us feeling better. It's about us being destroyed, thinking that we can merit anything. We come to Christ in awe and wonder because of who He is. It's also a Spirit-empowered obedience when we gaze on Christ, when we behold Him. That is leading us to faith rooted obedience that is coming out of this transform, transformation of the Holy Spirit 
As we gaze on him, we're reminded of his love, his commitment to the Father. We're reminded of his worth, of his value, and we want to obey him. That is not natural, is it? It's the work of God. It's the work of His grace. It's the work of the Spirit through the Word. In union with Him, His Spirit works in us and through us, leading us to the cross, which overflows to worship, overflows to obedience, because it's a work of grace. It comes from new affections that are now on Christ, not on self. It comes from new desires that are now on God, not on our own aspirations. It's spirit-empowered purpose and obedience driving us to His Word and up on that altar as living sacrifices. God-shaped obedience because He empowers that by His Spirit through His Word. And for Paul, it starts with prayer. Individually, but also corporately. I think I would emphasize corporately. These are letters that are not written to individuals. This is written to a body of Christ. And as we read it, we receive it that way. Corporately, we receive it, and corporately, we learn from it. Corporately, we grow in it. Prayer for one another to be rooted in Christ. Prayer for spiritual understanding and wisdom from the Word. That God would give us a desire for His Word. That God would open our eyes. That God would allow us to see His beauty. That He would change us. That we would know Christ. Walk worthy of Him. Be rooted in the Gospel. That we would abide. That we would grasp our union with Christ. And that this would overflow into worship. It would overflow into our relationships with one another, our relationships in our marriages, in our families, with our children, with our co-workers, our neighbors, and the nations. It overflows globally. So to close, I want to leave you with three different psalms. You can write these down. Uh, I'm going to read them. These are three psalms that speak of prayers that if we were to pray these, not just for ourselves, but corporately for one another, it will lead us to this very thing that Paul is talking about, that we would be filled with knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It would allow us to see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of His Word. And I believe as a church, if we are praying these kinds of things for one another... It will bring transformation by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 119, verse 36 and verse 37 teaches us to pray like this. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Why is this the first prayer? Because the first thing that my heart needs is to be inclined to God and His Word. Again, it's naturally not. It's naturally not inclined to God or to His Word. If I'm left to myself, uh, my misaimed gaze is on everything except for Christ. 
left to myself. Incline my heart to your testimonies, to your law, to your word, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from worthless things. This is a prayer that comes from God. This inclination comes from God. And that's why we should be praying this for one another every day. Because this is an inclination to God's Word that we need because it's not natural. It's not built into us. Well, as broken sinners, it's not. We need this, and it comes from God, and we need this corporately. To be praying for one another, incline my brothers and sisters' hearts, incline my heart to God's testimonies, to God's Word. Not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes away from worthless things. Give me life in your ways, in your teachings, in your word, in your truth. Give me life in those things. The second is Psalm 119.18. It's one thing to be inclined to God's word, but then Psalm 119.18 teaches us to pray this way. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I need my eyes opened. I need my heart open. I need my spiritual eyes open. I need my fleshly eyes to be closed and spiritual eyes open so that I can even behold the wonderful things that I'm reading. It does not say so that I can behold and find wonderful things outside of the Scriptures. It's here. It's in the Word. Open my eyes. Remove the blindness so that I can relish in these wonderful truths, so that I can see them as wonderful. Not as a burden, but that they're wonderful. And that would include the law, because here it's directly talking about the law as David prays this. The law is beautiful. We just can't live up to it. But we have somebody who did. And he had to because we couldn't. Fulfilled in Christ. Open my eyes. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for one another. Incline our hearts to God's word. Open my eyes so that I can even behold that it's wonderful. The third is Psalm 86.11. The psalmist certainly know our own hearts, right? Teach, it te- teaches us here to pray. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. We have to admit that our hearts are fragmented. They're going in all kinds of directions. Too often we're double-minded, unstable, serving two masters, maybe three fleshly desires drawing us away from Christ. We're yearning and longing after other things. And here the psalmist says, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth and your word and your law. Unite my heart to fear your name. Your name alone, not this fragmented heart. Fix all of my affections, all of my devotion on Christ. That's this prayer. This is a single devotedness single-mindedness on Christ. We need these kinds of prayers 
to be evident and active corporately, individually, in our marriages, in our families. We need these prayers that the Lord would fill us with knowledge of, of God's will, of His spiritual wisdom and His spiritual understanding. As we behold Christ, as we gaze on Him, it comes by prayer, this transformation. It comes through the Word. Every one of these prayers and psalms are on the Word. We need these, these prayers in the body of Christ here at First Baptist. This is how we should be praying for one another. Consistently. God will transform us through these kinds of prayers. Because none of these results that we see here, being in love with God's Word, beholding the wonders of God's Word, and, and ha- having a single devotedness to His Word, none of those things come naturally. For me, for you, it's not natural for us. We're broken by sin. Broken in sin. All of our direction of our heart goes the other way. That's why we need to be rooted in Christ as we pray. Rooted in Christ as we learn, as we grow together as a body of Christ. Paul's opening prayer leads us to the gospel, to the work of the gospel that they already should have seen in their life and also as it was bearing fruit and increasing in the world. The gospel, Christ, the message of Christ is enough. It's sufficient because it's seen in their growth and he prays that that path would continue. Rooted in Christ, rooted in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you have done, what you have accomplished for us, what you continue to do in us and through us. I know, Lord, that very often we are fragmented at best, chasing after other things. But Lord, would you, your spirit, work in a powerful way in our midst through your word to cause us to behold Christ, see him as our only treasure. And Lord, that that would overflow in the way we live in this church, in our families, in in life, as your gospel bears fruit and increases in us and through us. Lord, we need grace. We need mercy. We need you to open up our eyes so that when we gaze on you, we see truth. We see love. We see your strength. We see your completed work. Lord, will you do your work in this, in this body for the glory of your name that we would be witnesses to Jesus Christ in a, in a growing hostile world as ones who have hope. And what lie ahead for us is Christ and His reign. Lord, do Your transformation work as we gaze on You, as we behold You through Your Word. Thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.